Hi, this is Scott Thompson. Welcome to the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Thanks for listening. Tell your friends. Feel free to subscribe. Coming up on today's show, we celebrate, or do we, the one-year anniversary of the first diagnosed COVID-19 case in Canada. Woohoo! Canada will receive no COVID-19 vaccinations this week and a limited supply next week. What does that mean to distribution? The governor general has had to resign in disgrace. What does this do for the prime minister's brand? It's all coming up on the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. Oh, here comes the dog. This isn't going to be good. Ready? You over the Bills lost yet? I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. Kudos to the Buffalo Bills for a great ride. Can't wait until next year. More Buffalo Bills and less COVID-19! It's the Scott Thompson Home Show. Here's Scott Thompson! Uh, Yeah. I'll agree with that. Uh, good afternoon. It is 12-11. It is 900 CHML. I'm Scott Thompson. Willers can back at the station keeping the Scott Thompson Home Show on the air for the beginning of week number 46. Feel free to jump into the conversation. Love to hear from you. Uh, lots of ways to do that. Facebook and Twitter, you'll find the podcast edition of the commentary, uh, which talks about us bringing the uh, Christmas tree down. We took the Christmas tree down over the weekend. And by the time it was over, no one was speaking to each other. Thank goodness for football. Oh, my goodness. Did we need that? Anyway, I digress. I'm sure that story will come out eventually. And yes, the dog was enjo- uh, enjoying uh, chewing all of the lights as they hit the ground. Yes, we had to cut them literally off the tree. I know, I know. I'll hold you back. We'll tell you more about that a little later. A very bizarre day today because it's uh, a coronaversary. A coronaversary. It is the uh, first. <laughs> uh, that's a one-handed clap right there. Uh, yeah, it, it's exactly a year ago that the first case was diagnosed here uh, in Canada. How do you celebrate uh, a coronaversary? Is it, you know, well, it's kind of like New Year's Eve by yourself and uh, with a mask, I guess. Um, I'll celebrate when it's over at the other end. Can we hold off the celebrations till then? We'll go... All right. It will that more. Wouldn't that wait till New, uh, New Year's Eve next year? What do you think that's going to be like? All right. Uh, again, lots going on. We also touch on uh, what is happening in the U.S. and uh, and where we are with that as uh, President Joe Biden continues uh, his uh, his presidency and the relationship with Canada. We'll talk about that coming up a little later on. Also, speaking of politics, Canada back in the House as well today. We'll uh, delve into all of that. Uh, but in regard to today, marking the first uh, diagnosis of uh, COVID-19 in Canada. Here's an interesting uh, report about how it all started and how we got to where we are. At the time, there were very few reports available, uh, very little <laughs> to no literature, uh, but the, for the reports that were reported described uh, pneumonia and respiratory failure. Certainly when you pulled up the x-ray, uh, you could see sort of these patchy opacities in different parts of the lower lung zones. It's very typical for sort of, well, actually I should say typical for, for an atypical type of x-ray. And, and so that's certainly along with the travel history and the symptoms meant this was, this was the novel coronavirus really until proven otherwise. Paramedic services uh, played a 
a, a really important role here. They uh, flagged uh, the patient. Uh, they had identified this in the field, and there was some communication to triage. There was also our, our screening pro- process in place where we had added Wuhan uh, travel as a screening question already. And so, really, there was a, a number of redundancies in place. So, it was, it was very clear when the patient presented, this is someone that needed to be isolated immediately. And so, they went right into uh, a negative pressure room, and they, we followed our protocols for uh, novel pathogens. Uh, preparation, really, I always say, didn't start with COVID-19. We've, for years, we've been working iteratively on, on making sure we have a process for, for managing novel pathogens. And it's a very standard kind of highest level of personal protective equipment. We use a negative pressure room and our emergency teams have done training and simulations over the years. And then when the outbreak was declared in the epicenter, you know, late December into January, we were refreshing all of that to make sure everyone was comfortable. And, you know, you need to be ready for any patient that could present their a flight away from an outbreak like this. And fortunately, um, our, our teams performed very, very well. That's Associate Scientist at Sunnybrook Hospital, Dr. Jerome Lees, uh, talking about uh, Canada's first confirmed case of, uh, obviously, what uh, was known to become uh, COVID-19. Uh, and that's how we are where we are, as we uh, mark the first uh, anniversary of the diagnose, first diagnosed case here in Canada. Let's bring in Travis Danraj, Queen's Park Bureau Chief uh, for Global News, and he is with us now. Travis, thank you for the time. I hope you're doing well. Hey, Scott. Yeah, I'm great. This is a very bizarre scenario because it's an anniversary. Uh, how do you celebrate or uh, even acknowledge something like this? Uh, coronaversary, I guess, was one term that I heard. Uh, but uh, at the one-year mark, are we are we happy that we are where we are, or uh, is there, and is there optimism moving forward, or uh, do you get the feeling that we still feel like we're in the throes of all of this? Well, I think there's cautious optimism, right? I mean, the vaccine is here. Uh, you know, well, I guess the Pfizer vaccine is, is not really here because we're not getting any doses this week. But, but you know, the, the vaccines are being rolled out slowly but surely. We will be getting more uh, Pfizer vaccine at some point. Moderna vaccine is still going out. But listen, there are so many challenges. And what throws a loop into all of this are these variants now. Uh, and that is a major concern. You know, you guys were talking about the one-year anniversary. I remember, you know, I was at the gym working out. And I got a call from one of my contacts at Queen's Park, one of my sources, saying the health minister was going to have a news conference and that this man in his 50s from Wuhan, China, was at Sunnybrook Hospital, was isolated, and it's the first presumptive case of coronavirus. We didn't even know it was called COVID-19 at that point in time. It wasn't even named yet. I tweeted that out, went back to working out, didn't think much of it. A year later, that gym is now out of business, and Hmm. the world seems upside down. You know, I find myself asking my uh, asking myself and others this same question. But when did you realize that this was big? That this was something? My goodness, this is going to change the way we do things. Or for you, was it like many others? It just was so gradual. All of a sudden, man, you find yourself knee deep in it. Well, listen, I'll tell you a story. I mean, I don't know if you remember, but back in March, uh, the premier had told people, and I think it, it was just a matter of him wanting to not panic folks, but he said, go away, enjoy spring break. I, yeah, did that. Yeah. I went to Brazil. <laughs> I, I, yeah. I, you know, I flew uh, through the United States and I, I got to Rio and then I turned on, I think it was CNN and they were saying the Canadian uh, government is advising folks to come back because they can't assure them that they'll be able to get back into the country if they wait any longer. I turned around. I had been in Rio for five, six hours. I booked another flight and got I, I flew right back to Canada. 
Uh, oh, I mean, that, that for me was when I really realized, okay, this is going to change uh, the way we live. Holy smokes, that's an incredible story. Uh, what about, here we are sitting in this one-year anniversary. Obviously, as you said, this week we're experiencing the shortage from the Pfizer, uh, Pfizer vaccine. What's the buzz around the Premier's office right now? He seems incredibly frustrated, and he's having a hard time keeping a lid on it. He's, he is incredibly frustrated, and I think, you know, frankly, that frustration is not only with uh, Pfizer executives, but I feel like he feels the federal government should be doing more. You know, there was that famous quote last week, a couple of them, that he was going to be in front of the guy's door, the Pfizer executive's door. Mm. Uh, I know that he had a call with the head of, uh, you know, Pfizer Canada. That I, I don't know how that went. It seemed like it really moved the needle much. But, yeah, you can tell that the premier right now is very frustrated. He, you know, he made that uh, plea to President Biden uh, saying, listen, we're one of your uh, best trading partners. We're your closest ally send us a million vaccines from the plant in Kalamazoo, the Pfizer plant there. Um, you know, so he is he is kind of grasping right now at straws, but really the, the ball right now is in the federal government's court, and they're waiting for Pfizer. So, uh, obviously, that's one issue. Uh, we're heading into March break. We're, we're, talk, we're hearing the, the Prime Minister say, you know, if you've got any sort of travel, you should cancel it now, yet we certainly know of of the the polls that have been done where about 30 percent have just had it they're fatigued they're not they're not abiding by what's going on we find ourselves where we are we're starting to see uh, cases in ontario sort of level off we're at uh 1958 new cases uh today and then we get hit with the news over the weekend about the team passing away at a delaware ontario or who worked at a delaware ontario home that just must hit people right over the head about how serious this is what can you tell about this team well well listen and and this is you know the, the thing as well I, I did a story last week on the psychology of you talked about covid fatigue and, and yeah i mean the lockdown the initial lockdown a, a year ago did have an effect we saw the numbers start to level off in the summer this one the stay-at-home order doesn't uh it, it seems to be falling on deaf ears with some people and the psychologist that i talked to at the university of toronto said you know, the part of the brain that thinks about, like, you know, rational thoughts, that really is what the messaging has been targeted at so far, with modeling data and numbers and case numbers, etc. And he said, you know, the government may need to shift to appealing to the emotional side of the brain because, mm. you know, people need to be scared a little we have to we have to instill some sort of anything nothing you know not fear mongering but people do need to be aware that this is a very serious virus that is killing people and you know he said that the messaging may need to shift in terms of that because people uh, have kind of let their guards down so i thought that was quite quite interesting um, we are seeing the numbers level off, for lack of a better word, uh, certainly not the peaks that we have been seeing. Are there situations, have you heard any rumblings about uh, what's going to happen after February 11th or, or restrictions, that sort of thing? Well, with schools, I mean, I think that is the big question right now as well, right? I mean, there are uh, some students that are going back to in-class mm-hmm. learning today uh, in just a few jurisdictions. Uh, I think Peter Brown was one of them. But but the question is, for a lot of parents right now, are kids actually going to go back in early February to school? And right now, uh, that is, uh, is something that we don't 
really know. That's the intention, certainly. But uh, the Ministry of Education really hasn't given any clarity on that. So that's one of the big factors. The other factor, uh, of course, we're going to get an update today on this vaccine rollout from uh, Retired General Rick Hillier, who's in charge of the distribution task force. Uh, and we're going to hear from the Premier as well in terms of what the communication has been over the weekend, if any, with the federal government and with uh, with Pfizer. So those are the, kind of the two big areas that we're looking at now for the next couple of weeks. And then, uh, uh, of course, uh, long-term care is still a problem, right? I mean, you know, it was back in May, I think, that that big military report came out that shocked the public, talking about some of the conditions that the military saw when they came into long-term care homes. Mm-hmm. Um, this iron ring that the Premier keeps talking about certainly has not been built, and that is, that's, you know, a, a, a struggle as we continue to see seniors die in long-term care homes. More needs to be done on that front. You also have to wonder, too, Travis, um, you know, we're starting to see, and this was all well predicted, uh, prior to the holidays, it was predicted if people don't batten down the hatches, there's going to be a post-holiday surge. That's exactly what happened in the two weeks, first two weeks of January. I mean, many of the experts said this is what it looks like. This is a post-holiday surge. You have to wonder if if people are going to uh, listen to these restrictions coming up in March, because obviously once uh, the winter break comes along, people are going to be, it's going to be like... For some, it's going to be like the holidays all over again, and they're going to take off. Uh, are experts predicting another holiday surge post-March break? Well, and this is this is another issue that I look at tonight. I, tonight on Global News at 5.30, I've got uh, a six-minute piece that's running that kind of looks at the timeline of this pandemic. Uh, and this was one of the issues. You mentioned holidays. We always see a spike after holidays. You know, with the, the Boxing Day lockdown, the biostatistician that I talked to, Ryan England, basically said, you know, that was, even if we were doing things five days too late in terms of lockdown, we still allowed holiday shopping, we still allowed uh, holiday gatherings, and that really is what led to it. So we have to be very cognizant of what will happen if folks do go away during spring break. And, you know, I mean, the government is kind of stuck between a rock and a hard place right now, right? Because they are dealing with people that aren't listening to the rules. I was talking to Michael Tabola, who is the uh, Minister in Charge of Mental Health, the other day, and he said, you know, they're, they're kind of hitting a wall when it comes to, you know, people just kind of tuning out at this point. And so how do you get past that, that you know, hurdle? How do you get this message through to folks? Well, uh, I mean, that's something that they are going to have to grapple with, but certainly we need to ensure that people do not travel for spring break. Travis Danraj has been with us, Queens Park Bureau Chief for Global News. Make sure you're watching uh, Global News tonight at 5.30 and 6 for more on this, including the report that Travis uh, was speaking of. Travis, thanks so much for the time. Much appreciated. Thanks for sharing the stories. Uh, be well. Take care. Same to you, Scott. Thanks. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Will Erskine back at the station, keeping the Scott Thompson Home Show on the air. As we start, in, uh, as we start week number 46. Yeah, I'll say that again. 46. Uh, and celebrate the uh, coronaversary. Am I saying that the right way, Will? Coronaversary. Sounds uh, good to me. Did you make that up or did you take that? Did you steal that from somewhere? I made it up, but I don't know if I want credit for it. <laughs> yeah, good point. Uh, how do you celebrate the first anniversary of the COVID-19 virus being detected in Canada? I guess a lot like New Year's Eve, you're by yourself with a mask. Um, exactly. Oh, yeah, and that cricket. I hope you crickets are wearing masks. 
Uh, it's going to be an interesting day as we talk about that. And coming up in about a half an hour, the uh, news conference of the Premier and talking about where we are in the fact that uh, this week, uh, no vaccinations for us. Uh, here in Canada, and obviously the plan of distribution having to change uh, right the way across the country uh, as a result of that. So uh, going to be an interesting day, uh, not only provincially, but also federally, uh, as today uh, the House gets back in sitting. And uh, my goodness, there's an awful lot going on, uh, whether it is the situation with the Governor General, whether it is the shortage of uh, vaccinations, or a brand new president uh, in the United States of America. To talk more about all of this rachel gilmore is with us federal affairs journalist for global news and is with us now rachel thank you for the time i hope you're well yeah thanks you too man i think it's going to be a firestorm uh in the house to say the least which one of these issues do you think they're going to come out with and, and start hitting the prime minister with well you know it's hard to say because there are a lot of options right now but based on uh Aaron O'Toole's press conference this morning, it really seems like there are two really hot topics on his mind. One is the vaccine rollout, especially because this is the week that Canada is getting no Pfizer vaccines delivered, zero, which is obviously not how we were hoping things were going to (laughs) go. I don't think it's what anyone was expecting. Um, And uh, obviously not ideal there. And then the other aspect is the Keystone XL pipeline, which Joe Biden has kiboshed that is done and uh, a lot of premiers are really upset about that trudeau expressed disappointment on a call with biden but you know there's a lot more action that the conservatives want to see him taking on that front so all heated issues that i think we can expect there to be some sparring over in the house of commons today all right there's a lot to uh, to crack open here uh, let's play the uh, clip of aaron o'toole conservative leader on uh, on exactly what you're talking about here There is one key to protecting Canadians, and that's ensuring a smooth vaccine rollout. Conservatives want the government to succeed. Our nation depends on it. The ability for our country to rebuild our economy, to get Canadians back to work in every sector and in every region, depends on a smooth vaccine rollout. Instead of talking about their portfolio of vaccines, that the Liberal government has options to receive over the next two years, Canadians need to see tens of thousands of vaccines roll out in the next two weeks. It is imperative we work together to improve the Liberal vaccine plan and get Canadians back to work. We must secure vaccines, we must secure jobs, and we must act now to secure our future. While Canada's Conservatives are committed to protecting jobs, it appears the Liberals are holding meetings to protect their own. With the return of the House of Commons, my Conservative team will relentlessly focus on the COVID-19 recovery, jobs, pushing wages up, and getting Canada's economy and finances back on track. Uh, Rachel, any word on how the, uh, the the Prime Minister is going to get through this week? Um, we remember prior to the holidays, he magically pulled a, a shipment of, of vaccine uh, out of his hat and, and caught all the provinces off guard uh, and, and started early. Is, is there any chance of something like that happening moving forward? Unfortunately, I would be very surprised um, if he's able to pull any additional Pfizer doses out of a hat this week, because um, uh, the reason why we're having this delay is actually because Pfizer um, is reducing its production 
in Europe, which is where we're getting our doses from. Um, at that facility, they're expanding it. So, you know, long term, that's actually a good thing because they're going to be able to give us way more doses in the future and we can see things move faster later. But right now, what, the, what that's causing is zero doses this week. And unless uh, Trudeau is going to, you know, put on some gloves and fly over to Europe and uh, <laughs> try to move that, uh, that uh, upgrade a little bit faster himself, I, I don't think that there's much that he can do to kind of uh, stave off the criticism that he's likely to receive this week. But I think that he's hoping that uh, his image will be somewhat repaired if uh, that ramp up that Pfizer has described ends up being a reality in a few weeks. We have heard that uh, obviously this is a slowdown because they're they're retooling their plant and making it larger. So we'll in the end receive more vaccines, as as you're saying. But we've been hearing that uh, they're not holding back European shipments as much as they are Canadian. And then there's been some issues of 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 tax discussing discussing tax issues between Pfizer uh, and the Canadian government. What's going on here? Is is uh, uh, are, well? I guess everybody's. Uh, playing as nice as they can during a global pandemic. But uh, at the end of the day, we seem to be getting less than those other Pfizer customers. Yeah, you know, it's a complicated one. And it's been a bit hard to sort of (laughs) wrap our minds around because there's so many different numbers and, you know, they're changing so frequently as well. Um, But one thing that we're seeing is that the the countries that are being impacted by this reduction are being impacted differently on different weeks. Um, So, for example, last week, Canada didn't have as hard of a hit in terms of a reduction of doses, whereas some European countries were much harder hit. But then this week, we look like we're getting it way worse because we are getting zero. And some of those European countries are seeing their deliveries scaled back Mm. up again from the reduction they had in previous weeks. However, it does look like there's some indication that overall the numbers still might not be entirely fair. So that's been a point of contention and something that, you know, there's been a lot of political debate about, um, you know, where the reality on the ground actually stands. And it's honestly a bit hard to ascertain because there's so many figures coming out. It's such an evolving situation. Um, And then additionally, there's this story of the fact that Canada is making some tax changes with respect to the pharmaceutical industry that Pfizer doesn't, (laughs) Pfizer doesn't like those changes. But, you know, there's no direct connection. There's, we haven't been able to prove anything Mm -hmm. um, that that's actually having a real impact on our doses. Um, So right now it's just a bit of conjecture, but obviously the optics of it aren't great. Uh, another story that we're we're having a hard time getting to the bottom of, and Rachel, maybe you can shed some light on this. Do you know anything more about the Cancino deal, this deal that the Prime Minister was working on uh, with this Chinese manufacturer in order to secure vaccines, and then when it was time for testing, uh, the Chinese government said no, uh, and, and some have suggested that it's, you know, unless you're going to release the Huawei CFO, that, that we're not releasing this vaccine, and then the Prime Minister got in line with all of the other manufacturers and that's where we are and that's why we are where we are have you heard anything about that so i will say that that's sort of an issue that's taken a bit of a backseat. <laughs> um so i i haven't heard anything any new developments on that front whatsoever um i do know that obviously canada's tensions with china more generally are still an issue we're hoping that the biden administration coming in could see some developments in that respect especially with respect to the two detained canadians because the whole reason that you know, the tensions really kicked off was that arrest of Meng Wanzhou, uh, mm. you know, and that was at Trump's behalf. 
protests. And, you know, uh, just in the phone call the other day, Trudeau and Biden actually discussed the fact that they are going to be working together on that issue going forward. So, you know, I think we're hoping to see a bit of a, a defrost in our chilly relations with mm. China. But, uh, you know, that right now, I think that uh, a lot of work in cooperation between Canada and China is a bit unpredictable, a bit unreliable. And frankly, the tensions are still quite high. Uh, in that call with the uh, Prime Minister and the President, um, any chatter about uh, getting some U.S. shipments of the vaccine from Michigan? We certainly know that they produce it there. Obviously, America's having its own issues. And, uh, you know, I'm not sure their citizens will be happy if they even uh, shoot a million doses to Canada. But is there was there any chatter about possibly getting our vaccine out of Michigan as opposed to Europe? So we haven't really seen anything concrete on that front, no. Uh, They did discuss the COVID-19 response. You know, they said that they were going to work closely together to defeat COVID-19 by responding to the new variants. And they talked about collaborating on vaccines. Um, But, you know, we didn't get any specifics about whether there's going to be any big change in terms of Canada getting doses. And I, I would say, too, we're seeing a bit of a sort of protectionist um, agenda emerging in the sense that Biden's coming down with his Buy American uh, plan today. And mm. I, I would be very surprised. You know, I think that the vaccine issue is one where a lot of countries are becoming very nationalist. They're very unlikely to put another country's well-being ahead of their own. And I doubt that Biden would be freeing up any doses for Canada until his own citizens are fully vaccinated. All right, uh, Rachel, let's talk about the other hot potato, that being the governor general. Um, moving forward, lots are, uh, we, we certainly know the scenario and, and uh, the abuse of uh, allegations against the office uh, or in the office uh, against uh, the governor general. And obviously, when someone leaves this position, uh, they do so with quite the golden handshake. Many are upset thinking this woman, this person was was fired, basically asked to step down that they shouldn't be getting the restitution that, say, the last governor general got. Uh, do you think the, the prime minister is going to take some hammering on this today? I think he definitely will take some hammering on this issue. It's uh, it's really it's bad optics that someone who, you know, has been found to have um, in this report, we haven't seen the actual report, but the allegations are really, really dark. And really, um, it sounds like it was a very toxic work environment. And the fact that um, she's going to be entitled to a, I believe it's $150,000 a year pension with the additional $100,000 in expenses related to her having served as governor general and there's very little very little oversight on how those expenses are used so you know it's basically 250,000 a year with very very little oversight which is way more than any most Canadians do not make anywhere near that I think the average salary is about 50,000 so it's it's a story that really doesn't look good for uh, Prime Minister Trudeau I think they can expect him to be really hammered Aaron O'Toole came out today and said that uh, he does not believe that uh, Julie Payette should access those funds. NDP leader Jagmeet Singh is saying the same thing as well. So I, I think that we're going to see some uh, some action on that front for sure. Definitely a lot of people are pretty outraged at that news. And uh, I don't know what he can do exactly. Um, you know, I, I might require even a legislative change. I'd, I'd have to look at the actual uh, 
the way that it's all worded. But, um, you know, the stuff has uh, there are rules to these things. And unfortunately, um, <laughs> the this is a this is a new situation. And I think that they might want to take a second look at those rules. Yeah, you, you know, I mean, people complain uh, when when these officials resign on a good day, let alone when theoretically they were fired. And again, if it was in the private sector, uh, that certainly does affect the amount of compensation one would receive as going out the door. So it'll be interesting to see how that pans out. Uh, most importantly in all this, Rachel, what about the people who were affected by this? The employees, uh, some, you know, we understand left, uh, had to go on leave, some left permanently. Uh, we're certainly hearing stories of people leaving in, in tears and such. Um, so obviously there's a lot of duress there and, and perhaps even compensation for those that may you know have been wrongfully dismissed or were forced to leave. Any word on that, on how this is all going to affect the staff and, and those who are affected directly? I mean, if they've got uh, any sort of legal action, you would think this would help it out. Well, um, you know, we haven't seen the contents of this report, um, and so it's hard to say exactly what, you know, I, I'm personally not a legal expert, so I, I don't really mm-hmm. know what uh, what their case would be or how effective it would be. I think these things are so complicated, but I do think that, you know, there's obviously a lot of um, feelings for these people. Um, what they endured, it sounds like it was extremely toxic, uh, you know, people crying in their cars. It's just not what I think anybody uh, should be experiencing at work. You know, the only thing that uh, that you should be crying at um, at work over is maybe not getting the last donut on the snack mm. tray or something like that, you know? Like, it's, it's really not, um, it doesn't sound like it was a healthy environment at all. And the people at Rita Hall work so hard. They are lovely people. Um, so I think that everyone is pretty upset to see that that was happening. Um, there's there hasn't been any concrete announcement of uh, you know any any lawsuits or any um, progression on that front, but I think that we'll probably see, especially now that that report is done. Um, you know, if there's going to be any action on that front, I'd expect that we'd see it fairly soon. Many have said that obviously this appointment is uh, directly a result of the prime minister. Some have said that he really hasn't apologized for any of this. Are we expecting any of that today or is he just going to deflect? Do you think we'll see anything new out of this? I would be surprised if he apologized just based on um, last week. He came out and was directly asked multiple times if he apologized for making the decision to appoint her. And he did not apologize. He even actually said at one point he was asked, do you regret it? Do you regret appointing her? And he said that he thought that she brought a lot of positive aspects to the job, like her, you know, uh, her scientific background. And, you know, I'm sure that, uh, just the the kind of tone of that, it didn't seem like he was gearing up to an apology. Um, but it's possible that maybe his mind changed over the weekend. You never know. Um, but right now, it really doesn't look as though he's uh, he's going to have any movement on that front. Uh, Jagmeet Singh did actually say in his press conference today that he thinks that the prime minister should apologize. But again, no word on whether that's going to happen. Uh, last question here, Rachel. Uh, lots of uh, questions in regard to the vetting process. The Prime Minister did say that that uh, the Governor General was put through the proper vetting process, but you know, as many have said, it didn't take too far to look to find these these red flags. Anything more on the vetting process here? 
so there haven't been any concrete changes again to that. I, I feel like I'm saying that a lot this morning. Uh, a lot of words and very little concrete action as of yet. But uh, no, the, the uh, prime minister did say that, you know, she went through the vetting process, but um, that they are open to reexamining that. So I'm not sure what we'll see on that front, whether there will be concrete changes. But I think that most people can agree that just looking at how easily reporters found this information, they probably want to tweak it. So they, you know, <laughs> there were reports from the CBC that former employers uh were not contacted um, and that they could have spoken to how employees under her felt. And there were also, you know, an iPolitics reporter found that, uh, found her criminal, um, the the charge, the assault charge, which has been expunged um, and was dropped shortly after it was filed. Um, they found that really quickly and really easily. So it, it was a bit of a shock to a lot of people how, Easily, they were finding things that the prime minister's office would neither confirm nor deny that they had found themselves before moving ahead with the appointment. So I think that, you know, uh, a lot of people are expecting that, uh, you know, (laughs) that they would at least uh, beef up the behind closed doors vetting process, regardless of whether they actually uh, make any concrete legislative or, or rule based changes. Wow. House of Commons back today. There'll be lots of fireworks and Rachel Gilmore will be there. Federal affairs journalist for Global News. Make sure you're watching Global News tonight for more on all of this. Rachel, thank you so much for the time. Should be an interesting day. Be well. (laughs) Thanks. You too. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Lots to talk about with Alyssa Freeman, uh, of course, a PR expert, Alyssa PR, and uh, whether it's the Governor General, Larry King, or uh, the Prime Minister. Let's go around the horn and see what we find. Alyssa, thanks for the time. I hope you're doing well. As always, Scott, and you too. Uh, before we get to uh, Larry King and, and everything he was and such, uh, your thoughts on uh, on the PR nightmare, which is uh, the Governor General's office. You, you must shake your head when you look at this stuff. Oh, boy. I posted it so quickly when I saw that it was breaking news, Scott. You know, it's like everybody and their brother in Ottawa had heard rumblings of sort of this alleged bad behavior of the Governor General and in her office except for the people in the government. So I think that what it boils down to is, number one, when it comes to asking why. And, you know, when anybody else goes for a job, they are usually properly vetted. In this case, I don't think there was much of a vetting. I think it was Julie Payette, great Canadian, uh, astronaut, and she's a woman. Tick, 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 tick. Let's just get her in and let's not worry about it. How bad can it be? Well, I guess it was bad because, you know, you could have at least phoned some of your friends, I guess, over at the Montreal Science Center or, you know, any other company or organization, the COC, which was notorious at that time. So maybe nobody noticed how bad her behavior was when she was there. But still, I think that the whole thing sort of, it's disappointing, number one. Uh, number two, it was interesting that she resigned, but said, but there was a, obviously legal counsel retained, and only after they had hammered out their deal, obviously, that they announced the resignation. And let's remember who she hired. I think both um, her and her second lieutenant did hire. I think uh, Marie Heenan. So she's not someone to mess around with. So mm. clearly, there was an ironclad deal worked out about that. And then thirdly, she said, none of these things were brought to my attention. 
Well, I'm sure they were, Scott, but maybe they were never officially on the record until a new story broke about it. So, you know, there are many things that you can go down the rabbit hole on this, but, you know, the PMO is, is trying to stay above the fray and coming up with message that's more 100,000 feet rather than very granular at 1,000 feet. And the reason you do that is that you don't want to go into that rabbit hole. You don't want to get into the minutiae. You know, you want the story to burn through the media and then just move on and get somebody else. What about the fact that the prime minister keeps repeating uh, that she was vetted? So either she wasn't vetted or she was vetted, but they chose to ignore uh, what the results were, I would say it's the latter because everybody who knew anything about this person knew what her background was and that there were all kinds of, of red flags. So uh, obviously what was most important here, as you said, with the boxes being uh, ticked off from the feminist, self-described feminist prime minister, uh, that the image was more important than the person or the position. Well, that has a broad definition and you can give it any definition you want, right? So when we think of vetting, we think of something, especially for as a job as important as the governor general, you think of a very serious vetting. When somebody goes for CEO, it's the same thing. I mean, so, you know, your definition of vetting or their definition of vetting may be a lot different than what we think it should be. So, you know, you can say because you checked to make sure she didn't have a criminal record. Well, everybody checks that. But that's vetting. So, but even doing yeah. that, but even doing that, Alyssa would have shown the situation she got into the United States regarding yeah. the law, and certainly that would have raised other red flags. I think that there was a little bit of celebrity starstruckness in this, and they did the cursory amount of vetting in order to make a great announcement. And and listen, to be sure, I remember when she was first announced, and I heard that she was being nominated for Gigi. I thought, wow. That's a great choice. And yeah. I think a lot of Canadians thought that. I mean, she's a woman. She's bilingual. She's smart. She's a Oh, absolutely. I mean, listen, what was to know? I didn't know that she had a bad reputation and she was, you know, could be hell on wheels to work for. But <laughs> apparently she is now. And I think the big question is, so where do you go from here, Julie Payette? And I'm not sure what the answer is there. Boy, that's, yeah, that's a whole other uh, part of this. Also, the fact that she was, and let's be honest, she she resigned, but she was asked to, so theoretically, fired. Um, and now she's getting all kinds of compensation, which all governor generals get when they exit the position. The fact that she was turf, do we owe her all of that? I mean, I know the prime minister's going to stand up about rule of law, and whether you like her or not, we owe her this. But again, if we worked for a private company and we were terminated, it would greatly affect the compensation. But that's why you hire a $1,000 an hour lawyer to make sure that you get your money's worth. And that's apparently what she did. I mean, listen, I don't know how much her lawyer charged, but, you know, lawyers in that um, of that uh, reputation, they charge a pretty penny per hour. So as a result, she got what she paid for and they negotiated hard and she came out with uh, an agreement and a settlement that obviously made it a very cushy place to land. 
So where does this go from here, not for the ex-governor general, but for the prime minister? Again, his personal choice. This is another self-inflicted wound. This is a judgment call on his part. How does Canada respond to this? Do they care? He can get away with anything because we all love him so much. We don't care if he's got a lack of judgment, whether it's, you know, blackface or the governor general. Does he wear this? What happens? No, he doesn't wear it. Yeah. Um, I think that we care for as long as the news cycle cares about it, and then we move on. They'll pick somebody very neutral uh, for as the next governor general, somebody very boring, somebody who has impeccable credentials, and will be vetted six ways to Sunday, and then they'll move on. I think this is just something that in the daily course of being, you know, head of a state or head of a country that you have to deal with. And, I mean, he'll always say, look, you know, I gave her the benefit of the doubt. When this was first raised to me, we obviously did our own internal investigation. And at the end of the day, we feel we did the right thing. Boom. In, out, next. Uh, What about, uh, we're hearing that uh, it was uh, Gerald Butts and his wife Sophie that were behind the push to tick off all of those boxes. Does this change the focus of the Prime Minister's office? Obviously, Gerald Butts isn't there anymore, but he's still a good friend of the PM's. Well, he's not there, but I'm sure he's there. <laughs> yeah, exactly. He's on his right shoulder. Somewhere. and But he's carved off his own um, niche, and I'm sure is very busy and very successful. And I think that uh, Trudeau and Gerald Butts have known each other since McGill days. And they're very tight, and they're very good friends. So do I think that Trudeau still uh, talks to Gerald Butts? Of course I think he does. Does Gerald Butts have as much influence as he did when he was inside the PMO? I don't know. Um, I still think that his opinion is probably uh, listened to and sought after and considered. Uh, But, you know, he has uh, another career that he's dealing with. So, you know, at the time, I think they felt that they were making the right decision and everybody got really excited about it. And that decision, not you know, decided not to turn out. But at the end of the day, is anybody going to dwell on it over there? No. Um, again, if you look over the course of uh, the prime minister's tenure this time, um, you know, for the most part, done pretty well. Got a huge approval rating uh, for his handling of, of the uh, COVID-19 coronavirus and such. A lot of these things are just, again, they're, they're just stupid little, uh, I guess you couldn't diminish it by saying that, but certainly self-inflicted uh, wounds that he creates for himself. Are people going to start questioning? You know, many have said, and I've had professors, academic people on this show calling him everything from a lightweight to vacuous. Those are their words. Um, do you think that this will change perception? Or, you know, again, Teflon Justin, nothing can do no wrong. I think it's, you know, how Canadians feel is the devil you know. I think there was a recent abacus study mm. on, um, and you probably read it too, Scott, uh, about uh, Aaron O'Toole. So 28% of Canadians felt that he was doing a bad job, and 20% of Canadians felt that he was doing a good job. So my question is, where are the rest of the Canadians? Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) So, you know, Aaron O'Toole, number one, uh, not a great approval rating right now, but, you know, that's what happens when you're leader of the opposition. And people say to me, oh, but he's in the opposition, and how much airtime can you get? I I find that Aaron O'Toole is doing something every day to get airtime. So I don't want to hear about that. Um, I also think that, listen, Aaron O'Toole lost it for me when, 
you remember when uh, we had the long lines of uh, COVID testing, right? Mm-hmm. And he was in Ottawa with his family, trotted out his whole family, and they stood in line for about two hours. And then after two hours, they left and complained mightily to the media about how inefficient it was, and this government is doing a terrible job, and blah, blah, blah. And then what did he do? He went over to where, you know, parliamentarians, MPs can go get a COVID test, no must, no fuss, and there was no line. That reminded me of the time when Mike Pence went to an NFL game, and as soon as the players knelt, he stood up and left. Obviously, he had no intention of watching the football game, but he was making this 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 mm. gesture to show, you know, the office of the president's displeasure. That, to me, was the same sort of thing. So I think that Aaron O'Toole wakes up every morning, gets his marching orders from, you know, his posse the, in the war room, and does what he's told. So I just don't know. I think that he's more reactive um, in many cases uh, versus proactive. And I just don't think he has that likability factor yet. Now, that could all change, but right now I'm not seeing it. Uh, obviously, he seemed to take an extended uh, a holiday break and, uh, and and obviously back now. Haven't heard much from him in the last uh, couple of weeks at all. Uh, that being said, the House is back today, uh, and the big issue is is vaccinations. Again, for the last couple of weeks, we've seen, you know, it's distribution. The provinces aren't doing it right. There's stuff sitting in shelves. And, and again, I've been saying this for months and months and months and months. This will never be a distribution issue. It'll never be a approval issue. It's waiting uh, for the supply. So it's going to be a tough day for the prime minister today in the House of Commons. How does he how does he take this and move forward? I think he'll always keep it the way with his messaging, the way that he's um, managed it so far. There's one thing about Trudeau is that he, for the most part, does stick to the messaging. So he doesn't uh, get himself into hot water. Plus, I think that what he can say is that, like most uh, developed countries in the world, we're all experiencing um, a vaccine shortage because Pfizer, I don't know what they did, they retooled their plant in Belgium where all the vaccines are being made, and therefore we're not getting any next week. And I think that if the States and, and many other European countries are in the same boat. So I think that they'll probably take that line of messaging, to be quite honest, and then there will be tons of vaccines hopefully flooding in so that a larger percentage of the population will be vaccinated by March 31st. But I think that what is driving a lot of angst is this uh, new variation of the virus that is more transmissible, as we're seeing out of that retirement home in Barrie. So I think that that's what's worrying people. Like, you know, give me the shot in the arm already just so I can start protecting myself and we can get back to normal. Well, again, are Canadians going to be content with the message? We have no vaccine now, but a whole pile is coming real soon. Um, you, you know, like they're talking about having long-term care and retirements done by, uh, you know, the first week in February or such. But again, they're not talking about Canadians being vaccinated until uh, the end of September. Can you do that tap dance until, I don't know, April, May, where we start to see a visible increase in uh, in the amount of people being vaccinated? Are Canadians content with the prime minister saying, hey, that's just the way it is? I think that there's a couple lines of thinking here, and I think that there's people who are just ticked off. I think there's people who don't care. I think there's people that are not too concerned about it because they know that more testing is still being done. And Moderna is even saying that their vaccine will handle the variant, but now they're developing a booster. 
So really, Scott, by the time they get to you and I, there will be even more testing about the efficacy of the vaccine. And I'm like, you know what? I think I can wait as long as I stay safe, wear my mask, wash my hands and ensure that I'm maintaining uh, a social distance from people. And I think that if we can do that and, you know, these lockdown measures are starting to show progress. So, uh, you know, apparently there's been some real drop, uh, flattening of the curve in Alberta and in Winnipeg. I see that Ontario is having a predictable drop um, in the number of cases day by day over the past 72 hours. So I think that, you know, the winter months, it's going to be tough. And when you talk about tap dancing, I think he's going to wear out a couple tap dancing shoes, to be quite honest. Uh, you also seem to allude, and correct me if I'm wrong, that, you know, the vaccine hesitancy is going to make this okay. We're okay. We don't want to be first. I'm not sure I'm buying that one. Uh, well, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, no, I... I, I, I and I think that, you know, listen, I've read things in the New York Times, and I believe the New York Times, some people don't, but, you know, a couple people walk into a CVS late at night, and the pharmacist says, listen, I got two doses, I got to use them now, and they're not in the first tier group, they're not even in the second tier group, there's probably two guys in their 30s, can I give it to either one of you? They look at each other without hesitancy, they say yes. If somebody said to me, listen, I got a couple doses, can I give you a shot in the arm? Yeah. I would do it. I wouldn't yeah. say, oh, no, I think I'll wait five months for my turn. But, listen, that's not going to happen. However, you know, deploying uh, a vaccine and, you know, perhaps this week off, and I'm not making any excuses here, but I hope, I hope to goodness that, you know, General Hillier is working on his battle plan of distribution, and you got a whole week, buddy, to figure out how to deploy these vaccines uh, once they come rushing into Ontario. And, you know, obviously across Canada, they're figuring that out too, I hope. All right, so we got a couple of minutes left. Larry King, your thoughts? Wow, Larry King was the guy, wasn't he? I mean, mm. listen, there was a lot of talk show predecessors before him. And, you know, I watched Mike Douglas. Did you remember Mike Douglas? Yes, yep. Okay, Merv Griffin. Yep. I watched Merv. Um, you know, I watched Johnny Carson. We all grew up on that type of stuff. But when the cable news network came on, CNN, and there was this guy, Larry King, he was it. He was a longtime broadcaster before he, uh, you know, uh, landed up, uh, ended up at CNN. But he was the guy that everybody wanted to get on. You were on Larry King, you made it. You had something to say. You made it. Whether you were a politician, a celebrity, or just somebody who was having their 15 minutes of fame, you were on Larry King. And for a long time, he ruled the airwaves. And I think that, you know, somebody, people would say, well, you know, you lob a lot of softball questions at the people. But really, you know, how smart is that? If you're always going to hammer a guest when they come on, are you going to get guests? Yeah. No. You know, you can, listen, you do this every day, Scott. You put in some softball questions, and then you drill down to the hard stuff. Mm -hmm. And Larry King knew how to do that. He was obviously, you know, a never-say-die kind of guy. And even when he left CNN, he still worked. And listen, the guy had eight wives. He was very, very, well, actually, with seven wives, one he married twice. But he was a very busy guy, and it's <laughs> very unfortunate. Uh, I think that he was still busy. He was still a going concern, even in his late 80s. And I think the legacy that he left as someone who was one of the, you know, most preeminent um, interviewers of our time on a fledgling cable news network, 
he will always have that legacy, and I think he will always be um, admired for that. I remember watching him explain why he never read the book before, and he basically said to the guest, I'm not reading your book. None of the audience has read the book. If I read the book, we'll just a- ask questions about what it's like to read the book. That, that, that uh, alienates the rest of the audience. I thought that was hilarious. It was hilarious. And honestly, how many books can you read with the amount of guests that you have on every Exactly. Time? What was it, Monday to Friday, two guests? Yeah. Honestly, it was must-see TV. And I remember. I remember the background. I remember him and the microphone. And, yeah. you know, this was some guy who started off, and he, all he ever wanted to be was a broadcaster. And how many of us can go through life and say, I was what I really wanted to be, and I was happy about it? He's a legend. Uh, Alyssa Freeman with us, PR and pop culture expert. Alyssa PR, talking about everything political, and Larry King, too. Alyssa, thanks for the time, as always. Much appreciated. Be well. And you too, Scott. Thank you. 155 News is on the way. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML.